Welcome everybody to the ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the artist and scientist Fariba Bogzaran. But before we get going, the usual few housekeeping items. Our book study group on the dreams of light is still going on, and you're most welcome to join us. We probably have, I'd guess, another four months to go. And then my second book of the year, The Lucid Dreaming Workbook, was just released this December. The workbook format makes this a unique offering for me. I've never done this kind of presentation before, and I think it really worked. Things are relatively quiet on the upcoming, or with the upcoming holidays, but once 2021 comes around, a lot of stuff is in the works. As for my guest today, Fariba Bogzaran is really a treasure in the art and science of lucid dreaming. She has an utterly unique approach of working with dreams, including integral dream practice. As a scholar, researcher, and personal deep diver in lucid dreaming, she brings over 35 years of practice and study to this field. Her rigor is balanced with an amazing heart and a real gift for teaching, as you'll see. I, for one, was deeply touched by her knowledge, her kindness, and her grace. In this interview, we talk about how to identify the big dreams and the importance of journaling. Where do synchronicities and flow states fit in? And what is the difference between reflexive and reflective approaches to dreams? Where does body work and felt sense come into play? Can we let our body interpret or unfold our dreams. We also discuss things like epistemic uncertainty and how we can enter the zone of life with a deeper understanding of will, small w, and will, big w, big will. I think you'll readily see just how unique Fariba truly is and her massive contributions to the world of dreaming in general and lucid dreaming in particular. Hi everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And I have been waiting for well over, I don't know how many months, so excitedly for my guest today, Fariba Bogzanan. And so as usual, I will do a very brief introduction of this remarkable individual. And then we're gonna just jump right in. There's so much I'm excited to talk to her about. So Fariba, a PhD, scientist, artist, I love the way she introduces herself. Scientist, artist, founded the first graduate dream studies certificate program at JFK University in Berkeley, where she taught for over 20 years. She has taught lucid dreaming since 1984 and was part of the team at the Stanford Sleep Laboratory in the late 1980s, exploring the science of lucid dreaming. She conducted the first quantitative research on the transpersonal experiences in lucid dreaming, resulting in Experiencing the Divine in Lucid Dream, in, in lucid dream State, published in 1989. Among her many other publications are two major co-authored academic books on dreams, Extraordinary Dreams and How to Work with Them, and Integral Dreaming, A Holistic Approach to Dreams, both published by the State University of New York. And so we're also going to be discussing her new work, um, an anthology around lucid dreaming. So many things to talk about for you, but first and foremost, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to check in with us. 
Thank you so much, Andrew, for inviting me. Yeah, really. I, honestly, I've been looking forward to this for so long. But before we, um, you know, kind of wander towards the deeper end of the pool, maybe talk to us a little bit about uh, why dreams. What what is it that so inspires you to explore this nocturnal dimension of human experience? Uh, well, it started more personally first. I uh, I was a big dreamer when I was a child, and uh, I had some extraordinary experiences when I was younger, uh, uh, experiences such as precognitive dream, dreams in which it happens in the future. I had uh, many experiences of lucid dreaming, dreams in which we know we are dreaming. Uh, I became very, very interested in paying attention to dreams when I was a teenager, and I started already creating some hypothesis about uh, some of the areas I was interested in, and especially spiritual experiences in lucid dreaming. Uh, so then later on, uh, at first I studied biology, uh, was meant to go to become a, a medical doctor, and then I went into psychology because I was interested in dreams and dream studies, and then I pursued that uh, in my career to study dreams. So I did my both uh, master thesis and PhD doctorate on lucid dreaming. Uh, so that's uh, how it started in a very brief way. And, how and, I came to dreaming. And I, I wanna throw one question at you right away based on what you just said. I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of exploring the dream world altogether. And I know it had a, a, a really a big effect on um, William James, for instance, and, and this is the whole notion of how, how have, you know, these precognitive dreams, they are prodromal dreams, whatever you want to call them. They are one of the most fascinating aspects of the entire kind of nocturnal arena. How have these dreams uh, affected your understanding of reality? I mean, when you have such a kind of hiccup in the normal way that we relate to the world um, in terms of linear fixed time, how has how your experience of precognitive dreams actually affected your understanding of, of the nature of reality? That's a very good question, Andrew. I think that's, uh, we're still pondering on that. Um, I mean, there's many ways of answering that question depending on which paradigm you're looking at. Um, really, it's, it's, it depends on particular paradigm of, of viewpoint. If you're looking at the heart science, if you're looking at it from shamanic paradigm, if you're looking at a psychological, uh, it depends on which paradigm we look at it. But for me, um, as someone who is a precognitive dreamer, I've had many precognitive dreams. I've prevented dreams from happening if they were disturbing and recognizing which ones were precognitive. Um, I've come to this realization now, and, and, and that can change in future. I don't uh, necessarily see a, a big um, a break between who we are and the environment in which we live in. I, I think that we are very much um, one with the environment and also that we don't know enough about the function of our brain. We know some, but we really don't know. We haven't, we are just cognitive sciences it's young, it is just really exploring. I think that um, we, we like to often project things outside of ourselves. 
but I think that I would be very interested to know more about the, the brain function and how the capacity of the brain uh, can uh, perhaps foresee something that has not happened. But then, then you get into the question of time and then you, you wonder, well, is future here? Uh, and when in, in spiritual texts, you know, you're, you're well um, um, expert at this whole area, is that sometimes there are experiences where the, the past and present future just fuse together and becomes one. It's as if you can see the future uh, within the present time. So these are all can be looked at uh, in, a, in a multidisciplinary way. Uh, I was recently interviewed by uh, uh, another colleague and I mentioned that is that I think it would be really interesting to get a group of people from different disciplines, for instance, physics and cognitive science and art and psychology together and, and throw those kind of questions and see everybody what everybody thinks about it. Um, I think that maybe from this multidisciplinary, we can come up with a particular answer that we, we all be satisfied about it. But ultimately there is, uh, there is a question of, okay, well, why is it happening? How it is happening? Yeah. That those are the question now. Um, that you know we can just ponder on and i don't think that we have a, a particular uh, uh, an answer for it yet yeah i i love even like you're intimating uh fariba just just the mind-bending contemplation of these sorts of things because like you I've, I've been so blessed these tend to me to happen to me serendipitously i don't i incubate a lot of dreams but i don't tend to incubate these sorts of dreams so they do tend to happen serendipitously, but when they do, they're, I, I pay attention to them. They're, they're potentially real game changers for me. And so for our listeners, what are some of the criteria that you use to centrifuge out the kind of neurological noise that constitutes so many of our dreams in these kind of, um, you know, the really important dreams? So let, let's say, you, you, you know, you wake up one morning and, and you feel, holy moly, that was a precognitive dream. What criteria do you use to pay that kind of homage and their attention to, and then attention to these sorts of dreams? How can we help our listeners in terms of, geez, I have so many dreams, which ones do I really pay attention to here? Well, Andrew, I think it's a very, very important question. I think for people who are just starting to pay attention to their dreams, when I teach at the university, sometimes the students are very well versed and very well aware of their dreams and some they're just beginning. Um, and I often tell people that if you're just starting, uh, it, it is a, it's almost like a, a portal into the, your inner world. Mm. You want to pay attention to, to it and use techniques to remember your dreams and write them down. And then a year from now, reread your dreams and see what happens. And often people find a lot of dreams, they were precognitive. Pre oh, yeah. They actually did uh, uh, happen in future. But one thing we know um, that precognitive dreams have a particular felt sense. Yeah. And that felt sense is very unique to each individual. So for instance, I cannot tell you how that felt sense is for me, that would be exactly for you. 
but you know that felt sense. It's like an inner knowing that, oh, this dream, I yeah. know that this, it has that kind of a felt sense. And then the other thing is that for some of us who have had uh, repetitive <laughs> precognitive dreams, it, it often comes as spontaneous. I've never incubated a precognitive dream. It just happens. Um, I've had that, uh, 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 so I've had that long enough to recognize that particular felt sense. So when I wake up from a dream, it's like, ah, this dream is a dream that's gonna happen in future. But then the problem is when is it going to happen? Tomorrow, next week, next month, when? Um, I, I, I have a whole set of them, but then after a while when people are writing their dreams down, then they, they get very interested in specific dreams. Like for instance, I write every dreams that I have about certain deceased relatives. Mm. Like for instance, my mother, my teachers, my mentors, my father, you know, I, I, they're very important to me. So I, I captured them and I write them down. And uh, I write uh, my extraordinary dreams. Uh, and if we get one or two extraordinary dreams in our lifetime is wonderful. But if they're epic in, in, a, uh, in a sense that it wakes you up and you feel that this, yeah this dream is is important i have to really capture it but does it capture in writing i mean that's a very interesting one to look at what we write is just a fraction or fragment of a dream that dream experience because our dream experience is vast and that's where i work with uh, with my artworks i take that further into my studio. For instance, I might get an image in my hypnagogia. Uh, hypnagogia, uh, the moment when we fall asleep is called hypnagogia, uh, the word hypnosanagogia leading to sleep. It happens usually 30 seconds or a minute. Some people can prolong it uh, if we uh, use that state of consciousness. I get to say an image, uh, like recently I'm doing a whole COVID series in my art uh, the first one I got was this blue rose, but it had uh, gloves on them instead of the rose petals. And then I went to my studio and all the gloves that I was using during the COVID, I had disinfected them and kept them in my studio. I thought, well, someday I'll do something with it. And then I made one and I called it the blue rose. It just came out of that hypnagogia. Then what I did was I contemplated the, the blue rose and then the next night I had another image in my hypnagogia. Then I went to my studio and I start looking at it and work with it. So it's, it's this integration of the dreaming and the little bits that you capture there, then you go and create something, whether it's a music or poetry or painting or drawing or movement. It yeah. can be anything that can uh, enhance it to get us to really feel the experience of what that was. And that is the, what I, I like to use the word unfolding a dream instead of interpreting a dream, because interpretation implies that I am in interpreting it, that yeah. that thing is outside of myself, that I, the, the, dream, the waking ego, is going to impose something to the dreaming mind. <laughs> I would say that I like to unfold the dream I see it as a wild horse arriving in my room. And it's like, okay, how can I unfold this? How can I 
be with as more existential language is being with the dream than working with the dream. So it's a, it's a I, I like to, uh, for me using different wording matters because that really impacts our action too. I, I think that's incredibly beautiful and really well said because you know it's one of the areas where I think we get in trouble with dreams and, and, and this to me, let me just throw this in and then I can come back to this. When I have these, you know, the big dreams, the epic dreams and whatnot, prodromal, precognitive, for me, um, for me, but it's, it's off, often a, a quality of what Allen Ginsberg and Trump Rinpoche talked about is, you know, first thought, best thought, where in fact, I would say first feel, best feel. So by that, what I mean is just like what, what you're saying is that very often I'll wake up and before, before the, you know, the Rolodex starts to turn, before my narrative storylines start to engage, there's this visceral somatic feeling tone with the dream. And I, I find that that's really, in many ways, the biggest clue for me, um, because I noticed previously in my, in my younger years, how quickly I would, you know, um, kind of FedEx that sensation into my mind and then confabulate, interpret, and then not just merely interpret, that's the danger, uh, impute, project, and, and bring levels of meaning that, that I don't think were there initially. So for me, I, I find staying with that first thought, best thought, first feel, best feel, mm -hmm. and then trusting your body, let, letting your body convey the authenticity of that message. And so along these lines, I, I, you know, you're such an original creative um, artist, scientist around this discipline. Speak to us a little bit more. You're intimating it, but let's let's tag it a little bit more for you. But your approach to working with dreams altogether, it, it's, it's really original. Well, uh, I wanted to add one thing of what you said first is that I think your audience should know that there are so many different types of dreams. Right. That's very, very important uh, is, is that there are day residue dreams, dreams mm -hmm. that just things happen the day before and then we have a dream about it. And then there are extraordinary dreams or you know, dreams within dreams. I mean, I, in, in my first co-authored book with a Stanley Krippner and uh, it's called extraordinary dreams we looked at many different categories of uh, extraordinary dreams it, types of dreams are important then when we wake up as you say with this epic dream who is the self that is imposing that interpretation yeah because we um we are as a human being we are just an ongoing project we, we are basically unfolding ourselves and keep learning about who we are. We are not done yet. We are just keep every, all the time. We are just inquiring and consciousness expanding. And so what, wherever we see that dream from what, whichever perspective we are, um, that's where we can see it. That limitations is from the lens in which it looks at it. Then we come back to it 10 years from now and look at the dreams it changes because we have changed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I have one uh, beautiful story to, to tell. My, one of my painting mentor, Gordon Onslow Ford, when he died, uh, uh, 
he left his studio just the way he left it. I, I kept his studio just the way he left it. And people would come and visit for many years. I kept it for six years, didn't move a thing, nothing. And we had rep uh, repeating uh, uh, visitors to his studio. And I was always amazed when people would come and say, Fariba, you've changed everything. And nothing had changed in the studio. And I just would look at them and I said, nothing has changed, but you have changed. Yeah. You, then suddenly they see different, differently. And that's what the beauty of say, the work with lucid dreaming is that suddenly you, you confront the, the hab, habitual, habitual behavior. Suddenly your perception changes from that perception, the reality changes, the reality changes and then behavior changes. And that's really beautiful. Yeah, that's fantastic. It, it's like that maxim that I like to throw around so often these days that has so many different attributions. You know, we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. And, and therefore, what you're saying around um, the unfolding, that's beautiful, the unfolding, um, not just of the dream, but of our entire lives. And, and it's interesting if, if we look at dreams within a larger context, right, then life itself becomes an unfolding dream. Um, so it's another way to talk about the hat. So, so if you're comfortable, tell us more about, you know, this type of approach and, and, and your approach to working with dreams altogether, lucid or otherwise. Um, well, it's very interesting. Earlier on in my career, say 35 years ago, and I remember I was in one of the conferences of International Association for Study of Dreams, I, I told the audience, I said, I work with one dream for about six months to a year, and everybody laughed at me. They said, well, for real, get on with the schedule. You know, so we can go a little bit faster. <laughs> but um, later on, some of those people who were in my workshop, they came to me and they said, now I understand what you were talking about. Huh. And, and one of them was the late um, psychologist, scientist, uh, Ernest Hartman, who's a good friend. He was in uh, one of my workshop when I said that, and he, he, he thought that was amusing. And then later on, we got into dialogue and he, he realized it. And he also, he, was a, he, he didn't want to show that he was a poet. And at the end, you know, he actually published his poetry book. Uh, he realized that a, a dream can be like an art or, or artwork. Yeah. It's a complex uh, uh, collage of uh, current concern, past concern, future concern, physiological dash of mystery. It's a collage of, of so much in, in our system that when we get this dream, if we just right away interpret something and then put it aside, um, we have missed a lot of information there or we missed a lot of beauty there. Um, I remember when I started my practice, I had a private practice in mid 80s to mid 90s before I became full-time faculty. Um, I used to have clients who would come with stack of dream books. Hmm. They'd say, well, I've, I've jotted down my dreams for 20 years. And then they would tell me their life story and not much has, had changed. They've followed the same pattern so I would say, well, why don't you take one dream? We will work on that dream for four or five months and see what happens. Oh. 
And what, what I would do is that I would work with one dream from different angles, uh, from the, yes, from the psychological, from the somatic, from the creative side, from different parts. And suddenly this dream that looked seemingly insignificant, suddenly it would have a huge life. And then the next step would be how, if there were some insight into this dream, and if this insight warrants some form of integration, how do we integrate that knowledge or that insight into our day-to-day -day life? And that's the hard one, and that's why it takes time. There is one thing about understanding a dream. For instance, you get this brilliant method of working with dreams, and then you get an aha. It's like, ah, I understand what it is, and that's it. And then you go to the next dream and the next dream. But that's just one level of, well, the understanding is just one level. But how about if uh, we incorporate that understanding into our life and make changes? And changes takes time. Yeah. Changes takes a long time. And that's, you know, <laughs> hence I was saying that being with a dream takes a long time because if we are going to... Um, really unfolded and integrated, it takes time. Uh, you mentioned before when we were talking uh, of the, uh, the, uh, the um, conversation about the integral dreaming, uh, the book that I co-authored with right. Delaurier. Um, well, the, the initial proposal was that I would have, I would share many dreams, uh, with different type of methods. But at the end of it, I ended up uh, interviewing and um, talking about one dream of one person who participated in one of my dream retreat. And I uh, contributed a whole chapter to this one person and that one dream and how in the retreat she unfolded that one dream. Then, so what I decided to do was I started to uh, I contacted her and I started to interview her different times huh. and waited uh, uh, for time to, to, for this integration to happen. And it was so beautiful. I think it was just four years of going back and forth. And uh, finally, uh, I could write that chapter. And it's so beautiful how she, so she was a Jungian and she, she is a Jungian and she did not work with her dream from multiple perspectives. She worked from the Jungian perspective. And now suddenly she's introduced with different ways of working with dreams, in particular, the creative ways of handling it or embodying the dream. And it was beautiful to see how in her own words, without me interpreting her dream, in her own words, slowly, slowly, she, uh, had her realization and incorporated in her life. And that was really beautiful to watch. So it was, it was a whole chapter and one dream of one person over time. And to me, that is, that is very beautiful when this happens. Uh, and, and that's how I approach my dreams too. You ask about my own personal dreams. Um, right now I'm doing this series of work with uh, fringing canvases, basically, it looks like deconstructing canvas, but it comes from a dream I had in 2002. It's a long story, but I 
created a, a series of artworks and I put it aside and came back to it in 2012. Then I had a series of other dreams related to that. So it, suddenly a whole genre of art is coming out of one dream, lucid dream I had in 2002. I'm still working on it. And I'm delighting in it because it's, it's unexpected what is coming out. So I take something from a dream, I bring it into waking. And then I, from waking, I take it into my dream and then play with it from one state of consciousness to another. Oh, that's fantastic. There's so much here. You know, it's, it's really begets the, the whole approach of dreams as slow food. We, you know, we tend to just, like you said, just exactly. rapidly. Yeah, rapidly. Oh, I've just figured that one out. Let's go on to the next one. And several things came to mind here, Fadiba. Um, one is, you know, in the, um, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about four different types of, of guru, teacher. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you're aware of this, right? You know, you have the physical teacher, you have the Dharma or the text as teacher. You have the world, you know, it's called symbolic guru. You have the world as teacher, but the ultimate guru is the guru within. And this really adds extra credibility to the voices that arise from within. But somewhat along these same lines is centrifuging out, you know, somewhat along the same lines as the precognitive dreams. Uh, we don't just have the guru within, we also have um, unprocessed, undigested, metabolized egoic material within. And so therefore that, that issue becomes even more important. Which, which guru are you listening to? Are you listening to the egoic teacher, which probably will just lead you astray? Or do you centrifuge that out and then listen to the ultimate teacher within? Um, and so we can return to that, but also I love this in your, in your book, Integral um, Dreaming. And the, the fact that you brought it up is beautiful. It, it reminds me of what, again, Allen Ginsberg, um, wrote when he when he talked about you know writing your mind mm. and so in a real way uh, i love what you write um dream as art of the mind that you know especially with you and your work as a, as a visual artist you're you're quite literally painting your mind so talk to us a little bit more about dream as artistry um and the dreamer as the artist i think on one level we're circumambulating that that narrative the dream is artist and the dream is art. Um, so maybe a little bit more along those lines because I'm a musician, um, I'm a classical pianist. Um, I work, you know, this will transition a little bit more into the lucid dreaming arena. Um, I will literally do things like work with um, some of the piano comp uh, compositions I'm learning within the context of my dream. But I think that's a different application. I wanna uh, return to this kind of larger rubric of, of dream as art and dreamer as artist. Um, what is interesting, you brought up dream, uh, the fir very first sentence of integral dreaming. I, I, I really wanted to start that book um, and my co-author agreed with, with a, a sentence which nobody could really argue with because any theory that you come up with, uh, there's a debunking of the theory, but to say dreaming is the art of the mind, nothing, nobody can really argue with that. It is true. It's, uh, it is each one of us, we are the creators of our dreams. And the, the fascinating part of this whole um, uh, area is that we wake up in the dream, I mean, we wake up in waking, we have a certain kind of perception about who we are. 
people who are not, they, have, they don't have their hands in the arts, they, they might not see themselves as artists or they, they live life a certain way. But then in their dream, you will look to see that, my goodness, that person in the dream is so innovative, so creative, they, they just put things together like no other. So who is the one who's creating the dream? It's not the happening from outside, it's that person who is dreaming. The dreamer is creating this fabulous scenarios and narrative. So we, we are artists in our dreams. We all are. We can't just, that's the beauty of it, we all are. The way, as I mentioned earlier on, we collage things together and we create it whether imagery or whether with emotion, that it brings it all together. And also, I think that there is a, a, a level of uh, open-mindedness, if we can use that. If the dreamer is open or the, the waking ego, or the, when we are awake, if we are open and flexible about what is happening in our inner world, and access it, it really starts happening in our waking life. Suddenly we realize, oh, I'm, I'm just becoming a little bit more spontaneous. Another thing is happens, oh, there's more synchronicities are happening because we're getting more in touch with our inner life. I remember once one of my students uh, came over and we were going to go and have a, a cup of tea. We were walking and I was sharing a dream with him. So oh, I had a dream last night about this. I just felt like I wanted to share with him. And then he stopped and he was really shocked because in this dream, there was a gourd there. And then suddenly she, he, he went into his uh, bag and he took out a gourd. He said, uh -huh. I don't know what happened, but when I was leaving to come and see you, this gourd needed to come uh, with me to give it to you. But then he was really scared. He said, he just, there was something horrible is happening. He was like, not horrible, but it's just so shocking. Yeah. And I looked at him. I said, you know, if I don't experience synchronicity in my life, I think there's something wrong. That's right. That's right. Because it, when you are in touch with your inner life, when you pay attention, even being very attentive to the outer life, like for instance, being attentive to nature, being really deeply, deeply uh, in touch with oneself, then synchronicities are all over the place. They're, they are everywhere. So it's not something that we project onto the other person. That person is the creative one, the other one isn't. We, I, I really believe that we all have the potential to be creative being. It's just a matter of being flexible and open to bring it or fish it out of ourselves, so to speak, just bring it out. And uh, I feel very lucky that I continued both careers as an artist and also as a scientist, psychologist together. I never abandoned one or the other. And that, and I have to say that I see the benefit of it because I feel that I'm more of a whole being. And I, I think that everyone has some spark of creative juice in them and then just getting in touch with one's dream that can bring it out it's very beautiful yeah and i would <clears throat> i would put one little exclamation point here um, for Eva, because i couldn't i really completely agree with you on the magic of synchronicity and 
the way I always read it is that, you know, when, um, when the universe is on your side, your life is reigned with synchronicities. Mm -hmm. And when the universe is not on your side, coincidence is gradually replaced with accidents. You, 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 it's like anti-synchronicity. You, when you're off, you, you, get, you literally sometimes trip, you bump, you, you know, things, you're not quite in your flow zone. And then, of course, depending on how asleep you are, the accidents really can really uh, get louder and more proportional to the level of your narcosis. And so, therefore, if you're really aware, in fact, in my tradition, um, you know, we actually did practices, lungta raising practices that were designed to literally nurture and cultivate synchronicity, what's called tendril. And so it, it's just part of what you're saying, just this magical, completely ineffable, uh, trans-conceptual way where, and this ties into the, to this, to the third type of guru that I mentioned earlier, this is one way you start to see the world as symbolic guru. Your teacher then becomes the phenomenal world. You know, Milo Repa once famously said, phenomena are all the books one needs. If, some, if you can simply read that living dream, unfold and so to speak, interpret it as it goes along. And so to me, I love this because it also begets, in fact, the fluidity, the openness, the flexibility of the so-called waking state, that if in fact we see it within the eyes of the, of the artistic dreamer, we start to see it's not that different from the dream and that we can, with the same type of immediacy because of the empty nature of our waking reality, we can get these kinds of so-called messages um, very directly from the phenomenal world, moment to moment to moment. And, and I honestly believe this is the way the great spiritual masters actually walk through life. Like for instance, Trungpa Rinpoche, when he came to the West, he didn't have some master plan. He came to dance. And what he did, I mean, this is my projection or, or interpretation, is he let reality lead that dance. In other words, he was so in tune with, so intuitive, to his environment that he actually simply danced with the dictates of the environment itself. And so I think you can take this particular principle to even more elevated arenas where, where the world altogether, if you're so open to it, becomes your teacher moment to moment to moment. Have, have you had this experience as well in your life? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, since you're, you're talking about your tradition, I, I, as you might know that uh, one of my very good friends and, and teacher was Lama Tarchan Rinpoche. Yes, I knew him. Um, and uh, I remember in one of the dialogues I had with him, I said, Rinpoche, uh, so you have treasure revealers in, in your tradition. Isn't that the treasure is deep inside of ourselves that we are going in and revealing? that treasure. I mean, there are many different levels with treasure revealers. And he just smiled at me and he said, of course, of course. It's a, it's a treasure that it's inside each one of us, but sometimes it's, it's has been um, dust, uh, dust has gone on, on top of it that we have to go and, and clean it up to find it. It's going deep, deep inside of our ourselves where wisdom lies. Um, so that's a yeah, it, it just reminded me of what you said uh, about, you know, the gurus and the different teachers. And um, yeah, I, I personally, it's very interesting what, how you said it. I tell people if I am, if in synchronicity does not happen in my life, I feel like I'm banished from 
from the gods or goddesses i'm banished from the universe huh. because nothing some something is disconnect and mm -hmm. suddenly things are not flowing and that has happened uh, once or twice in my life but luckily i i i was able to to retrieve and uh, yeah it's a it's Deep listening too, it's an intuitive knowing, is deep listening, is allowing the flow to move. And also, uh, I do believe in the inner in dreams and the energetic aspect of the, the being, uh, that it's important that we do something with our physical body, that it connects us with that energetic body. And that sometimes there are stagnations as in uh, acupuncture often they say with the meridians there's a stagnation so then there's a flow of chi that happens right. and th it, it, that that's to me is also important that that that, that flow happens that we would do some sort of practices that uh, opens up those channels that uh, makes us more open and flexible and seeing these and then suddenly we see these synchronicities happening and then the the, the division or the, the big um, boundaries that sometimes we put from dreams to waking so it, it it becomes very transparent because consciousness is continuum going from waking to dreaming from dreaming to waking it's not as if while well, I go to bed and then just shut everything down and then I go to sleep and then I wake up and then there's the other self. It's there is that continuum. And I think that once we start seeing that continuum and get in touch with it and be awakened to it, um, then suddenly we we get surprises and unexpected experiences. And uh, it's actually quite, quite an adventure. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that going back to art and and dreaming and it's all about inquiry oh. for me uh, uh, i don't make art because i want to make a beautiful object i mean it, it might turn out to be a beautiful object at the end but it, it is an inquiry and that's that's where where i feel like with art and science uh, there's a lot of connection in fact, uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences years ago asked me to come and give a talk about art and science and the connection between the two. And I called it uh, art as science, science as art, or art as researcher, as artist, art, uh, artist as researcher, because there is a connection. It's all about inquiry. It's an inquiry within. But then what this inquiry within does, it brings us more awake into our outer world. In fact, people who are asking me about lucid dreaming, I say, well, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, it was fantastic to keep focusing on lucid dreaming. For me now, is it's been all about lucid, lucid waking. It's, it's very important that we would be awake to our environment, uh, what's happening socially, what's happening politically, what's happening in our body, what's happening in our relationship, the whole of it. Uh, to become lucid inside of it all. And that's, that to me is very important, especially what has, is very close to my heart is about what's happening in environment. Right. You know, I, I lived most of my life in nature 
And I have observed what's happened in nature in the past few years. And also I'm a long distance uh, ocean swimmer and I've, I, have, I have witnessed the bleaching of the, of the corals when the, when, the, uh, when the ocean got warm in 2015 and then later on again, 2018. It's devastating what's happening in nature. And uh, for me, is how can we be uh, lucid about our environment? How can we see ourselves one with it and not apart from it? I mean, uh, this whole thing with the COVID is really bringing a lot of awakening as well. Let's hope. That's, you know, that's, that we are not indispensable, you know, just that this, we, we are, uh, we are part of this whole natural environment we're in and uh, and this awakening is very, very crucial at this point, this juncture in time. So that's where uh, my uh, focus is. And I, I have focused on one of the direction of my art is focused on ocean pollution. It's called blue is turning, turn it blue. It's having consciousness towards what we are doing to our waters. Um, and they're, they're all connected to my dreams too, but I don't disconnect them. It's just all connected together. Yeah, that's really beautiful for you. And it reminds me of several things here. One is the, the notion of inquiry, you know, dream yoga really is, is a form of uh, nighttime Vipassana. And Vipassana, one way to talk about that is really is, is a kind of analytic meditation. It literally is a process of inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, where we can investigate the nature of, of actually mind and reality altogether using this kind of system, this ecosystem of the body mind. And so I wanted to um, tie something in around this, what we were talking about earlier. And, and that is in, for, in fact, this really beautiful connection between body, dream and ecosystem. And, and by that, what I mean, there are several things that come into mind here. One is, I'll see if I can keep them in order for you. Um, one of the most compelling systems of dream interpretation for me is Eugene uh, Gendlin's work or Gendlin's work, depending on yep. who you talk to, you know, let your body interpret your dream. So one question I might have to you around that, and then I want to return to, you know, our body is basically our personal earth. And one of the reasons we're so disconnected to the ecosystem altogether is because we're, we're disconnected to our own ecosystem, our personal earth, which is our body. So I think that fundamental fracture takes place in exactly our inability to do precisely what you're talking about. So I guess there's two things here uh, for you, but one is to return ever so briefly to this notion of dream interpretation. In your approach to working with dreams, would you therefore then, and also in the spirit of something we've been circumambulating that maybe we can get back to in a minute, in the spirit of integral dreaming, would you would you um, not necessarily put primacy to the work of someone like uh, Jenlin? Would you simply use his interpretation as one of these different facets to look at a dream? Is that a fair way to look at all these different lenses that these interpretive mechanisms bring? Um, well, I mean, he has his own method that he's working with. I uh, um, I was trained as a, a Reichen therapist, Wilhelm Reich, and so I, I have devised my own way of approaching dreams with, with the body, which is, I think it's every practitioner at one point 
creates their own way of approaching that works for them. Uh, for me, is is uh, combining my practice with Taoism. With you know, I'm a Tai Chi practitioner, and then Reiki therapy, which focuses on breathing, and then also movement. Those are the those are the areas. I think it's very very important in in looking at dreams if one wants to really be with it. Um, to see where is the emotion is housed in the body. Because mm. as we know, in dreams, images can be a metaphor for something and uh, emotions are emotions. And that is the research that Daniel Delorier's done about dream understanding. Uh, so we know that if we have an emotion of anger in a dream, when we wake somebody up from that dream, they're more likely to be angry. And if they're anxious, they're more likely to be anxious. But if they have a dream of, uh, uh, of some imagery that they're going through, that might be a metaphor for something else, but not the emotion. And then we have to look at where does this emotion house itself in the body? Anxiety might house in somebody's body in their stomach, or it might be in their head, or it might be in their heart, or it might be in their lungs, or it might be in their chest, or it might be somewhere else. So um, first seeing where is this emotion in the body and then doing some simple breathing to again, going back into a stagnation and trying to bring the flow. Because what happens is that often when we are looking at a dream, we're trying to, uh, the, often the tendency is to interpret intellectually, you know, by trying to understand the dream. But we, often neglect the intuitive knowing and the bodily knowing. I mean, there's so many other ways of knowing. And so it's very, very important to say, to see how this dream is housed inside the body. I, I meet many people who have great intellectual uh, understanding and also brilliant in interpreting dreams. But then when it comes to the body, there is a stagnation there. There's no integration there. But there's, there needs to be a movement there. And I think that that's one of the reasons in many spiritual practices, you do sitting uh, like Zazen or you, uh, Apashana or uh, any other practices that you look at, then they have some physical practices like yoga, like Tai Chi, like it's some, something with the body that has to uh, be uh, involved in this uh, equation. So I think that, um, the, the, that maybe, now this takes us back to integral dreaming and integral dreaming basically look, is looking at the premises of it is that we are multidimensional being, dreams are multidimensional and the way to approach dreams has to be multi-layers multi or multi-faceted. And how does that work? So if you look at the dream from being in the center, you can look at it intellectually, you can look at it from the body, you can look at it from the creativity, you can look at it some, from many different angles, you can look, look at a dream on one dream and explore that from that perspective. So that is, for me, it's like I don't take one approach because I'm more of an integral thinker 
you know, my, my studies have been, I, I'm a student of, uh, my study was at the California Institute of Integral Studies. So that's, I was very well versed in the integral approach. So I can't put myself into one way of looking at things. I have to look at it from many, many different perspectives. Um, so that is, that would be sort of my answer to that. Yeah, that's real. It's, it's incredibly helpful. And I would also really just echo this notion of the importance, it's a wonderful play on words of understanding that to really, to really know, you know, it, 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 in my work these days um, for Reba, and this is one reason I love dream yoga um, so much is it's my nomenclature of a traditional kind of pedagogical approach. And I'm sure you're aware of, it's called the three wisdom tools in, um, in Buddhism, the three um, pragnas, the three basically forms of ingesting, digesting, metabolizing, so that the teachings, really the fundamental way you can only really understand them is from below, from under. Um, the metabolism uh, the, uh, that takes place really within the body. And this, I think this ties in so beautifully with dream yoga as a tantra. I mean, dream yoga comes from the tantric traditions. And one of the things the tantra does in a certain way is tantra redeems matter. Um, in tantric, what differentiates tantra from the so-called causal vehicles is body is as important as mind. And so, you know, the whole kind of bi-directional pedagogical approach comes into play here that, that we use both to work with each other. Um, and then also completely in line with the integral approach to this. And so to me, that's, that's just the real elegance of the, the um, dream from the dream yoga tradition using subtle body yoga. I mean, it's considered an inner yoga, which is a subtle body. And it's a way to work with subtle dimensions of mind using in fact, subtle bodies and so subtle body processes. And so when you talk about the inquiry where's the emotion housed in the body, this is absolutely an invitation to inquire into the structure of the subtle body. Um, and as you probably know, in the Bund tradition, to take it even a little bit further, they profess or put forth that dreams actually originate. Every dream actually has a subtle body um, location. And therefore, in a very interesting way, you can actually start to incubate dreams depending on where you put your mind, where the prana goes, you can actually um, start to see dreams by working with that. But I think this is incredibly important because it, it, it gives equal, um, pardon the play on words, it gives equal footing to the body in this journey. Um, and that again, it's not just the intellect that comes into play completely in line with integral approaches. So let's come back to that just a little bit more, for a little bit more directly, um, how, do you continue to work? So you, you, I think you defined this notion of integral dreaming um, in a really a wonderful way, but what, what is integral dream practice for you? you? You write about this in your book, Integral Dreaming. I found it so compelling. Share with us a little bit about, in a certain way you've been talking about this, but let's make it a little bit overt. Um, what, what is integral dream practice? Um. You brought up so many wonderful things about the subtle body yoga, so I wanted to... Well, we can go back to that, sure. This is just... <laughs> yeah, a, a, I'm just planting seeds. No, that, 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 that's such an... That, that interests me so much uh, because usually in the 
uh, usual psychological conversations that does not come up. And that's very, to me, that's very important. The, the, the subtle body um, experiences. And uh, as you mentioned in the dream yoga, that's, that's crucial. And uh, yeah, I, I would just uh, love to just talk about that. And, and, and it's also in indigenous cultures that that's, uh, that belief is very strong here as well. Um, now, um, yeah, because when you started to talk about the subtle body, now visually I started to go all over the place with that uh, because this uh, area of subtle body is so, to me, is, is a very important area to do further inquiry into, uh, looking at dreams and that uh, area is very, very, very fascinating to me. But as for the integral dreaming practice, um, well, maybe I should read a passage about integral dreaming for your audience. Integral dreaming brings a connective voice and an expansive approach to the field of dream studies. Its holistic perspective springs from the idea that we are multidimensional being, the dreams are multidimensional events, and that there are multiple ways of viewing, as I mentioned, an insight to the dream. Now, how to approach it? Basically, uh, what uh, I did in 1984, I uh, did a, a, a research for six months, uh, creating different methodology of how to address dreams. And I was teaching a graduate course uh, in Canada and I had a group of students and I would test these methods and see which one was working. And I brought them together, whichever was working, called it dream creations. And then throughout years, I, I just changed it more and more and incorporated uh, ways of working with it. Um, basically, the integral dream practice brings two different uh, phases of being with dreams. One phase is more the... Uh, reflexive phase, I call it, and the other one is reflective phase. The reflexive phase is the phase of looking at the dream non-interpretively. So being with the dream from a place of no interpretation, meaning using uh, artworks, writing, automatic writing without thinking, creating poetry, being with the dream having the dream arrive inside of a creative process instead of having the dream arrives into the mental process, which is, I think, is a little bit far from the dreaming experience. The dreaming experience is more closer to the creative mind. And I often say the dreaming mind is very similar to the creative mind. And then once that is done via um, uh, what I call it, a poetic synthesis of all the writings, uh, automatic writings. And then it, the next phase is more the reflection of how this dream uh, relates to one's life. Uh, and does, does it relate to one's life? Maybe the dream is just a social commentary about what's happening in the world that the dreamer just picked up. Or perhaps it has some kind of a psychological uh, gift to give to the dreamer. Um, 
however it is, is that the, in that sense, the, the, the dreamer starts reflecting on, on the dream. So it has this two components uh, of it. And uh, I, I often encourage uh, my students to create their own method that works for them. Uh, we, we can give a whole set of methods. Uh, for instance, in integral dreaming, I have a whole three, the, the third section is all about uh, more the philosophical base of integral dreaming. And then there's a whole chapter about how this process works. But then someone else can take that and work with it differently. However it is, I think uh, the, the, the part that is important is that the intention of, as you're talking about Tibetan Buddhism and your tradition, I remember I took this retreat uh, many years ago on dream yoga and the, the word that kept coming was motivation. It's the motivation. And often people ask me, well, why didn't you write a book about lucid dreaming? I could have done that 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Why didn't I do that? Because I, first of all, in the eighties, I, I was working with Jane Gackenbach and Stephen LeBurge and I thought that they, they did a wonderful job of writing wonderful right. books on, on it and it's all there. And, but then I thought it's, it's only like, it's only one sentence really, is motivation, intention, and practice. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things that for me is very, very important in approaching either dreams or lucid dreams, is that if, if one is really motivated to want to know one's in their life. I even tell my students at J, uh, where I teach, I said, you know, if you are going to be in, uh, exploring dreams, please have your uh, spouse or your family uh, share the information with them. P please share that because what happens is that once we start opening the inner worlds, we are going to change and our environment is going to change. So it's good to, to bring in the others to it too. Uh, to to explore to see what 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 is that, um, but the the, the um, sort of summary of it is that if one wants to look at dreams from an integral perspective, is 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 important to look at multi ways of looking at the dream instead of sticking to one, and that multiple way of looking at it, it really expands consciousness. It expands us. It, uh, it teaches us new, uh, unexpected information that we didn't have. Sometimes we get sort of comfortable with the method in which we look at things. And uh, if we just look at other methods, that, that, that would bring new uh, learning. So how, and this is all so rich. How, how does this start to change, um, Fariba, when we transition more, you know, <clears throat> into lucid dreaming, let alone dream yoga? Because most of what we've been talking about really applies to the the spectrum of, and again, this is not in any way um, dismissive of non-lucid dreams, but this is a little bit more beautiful kind of classic so-called dream work, even though it stretches the envelope in these ways using integral approaches and the like. Now when we take this quantum leap, which of course is a misnomer, now when we take this, this um, leap into lucid dreaming, 
how, where does your mind go around all this? How does it shift um, when you start working with lucidity principles? Um, how, you mean how to work with lucid dreaming? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. How, how to work with it. Because, you know, I, I, and let me just disclose a little bit my, my working with this. It's a little bit like, um, and again, this also even takes it just a tad bit further than my rendering of lucid dreaming, which is more dream yoga, which is slightly akin in the way I work with the Faribas, like the difference between like meditation and therapy um, that, you know, when you're working with meditation during the day, you're not particularly interested in content. You're not interpreting. You're basically transforming your relationship to the contents of, of mind. Mm -hmm. And so in the dream, um, especially dream yoga, the way I work with it, and this is where on one level it's fantastic because all the different varieties of dreams that we have, everybody has a place at this table um, because we're not there terribly, we, um, the tradition as I interpret it, is not that terribly interested in dream content at this point. It's more about what do you do with that content? And therefore in my cartography, I have you know, these nine stages of dream yoga, which are increasingly refined ways to work with dream content, basically the underlying narrative being the exploration of emptiness. But that's, that's just me, that's my bias, that's my approach. I'm curious about your approach. Um, how do things transition for you when you work um, you know, the transition from standard interpretation interpretation of things we've been talking about, lucid dreaming, and then even maybe a step beyond that um, into dream yoga. Um, well, you know, my approach is very non-interpretive. That's why um, I, I, I talk about it in the, in the integral dreaming book. And, and that's very similar to lucid dreaming practice. To me, lucid dreaming practice has a whole other area of, of dreaming because um, we're it's it's complex because it's not only we're talking about method to uh, to be with lucid dreaming but then we have a whole dream incubation then then we have a whole world of you know being conscious in our dreams so uh, it just uh, gets very very complex so my approach with lucid dreaming first is that well first of all is that some people are spontaneous lucid dreamers some people have to use certain kind of techniques to become lucid i often ask people well why do you want to become lucid in your dream that was that's my first question is it what's the intention what is the motivation of wanting to become lucid in one's dream and i've discovered that that intention and motivation varies drastically from one to another. Uh, people have different uh, reasons why they want to become lucid in their dreams. Now, my interest and my research for the past, well, 30, well 32 years ago, I launched this research uh, of uh, transpersonal experiences, spiritual experiences in lucid dreaming. And that really shaped my way of working with lucid dreaming and my particular focus on it. So uh, some of the areas that I'm interested in lucid dreaming is the spiritual experiences. I'm interested in the phenomenon of light in lucid dream. I'm interested in phenomena of void. I'm interested in um, how uh, the, the, the lucid dreamer interacts with the dreaming environment creatively. 
And I'm interested in Paul Tolle's uh, work uh, on uh, uh, how we can enhance, uh, he used, he was a sports psychologist, so he, he helped people, helped um, athletes to enhance their capability in lucid dreaming. I'm very interested in how I can enhance um, my creativity in lucid dreaming and how I can uh, learn certain things in lucid dreaming that it would be uh, otherwise difficult in waking. So I, th that's, that's the areas that you know, I've been very, very interested. And also how to be inside of a lucid mind where one can meditate inside there to, to have no content and then see what happens. Uh, sustaining those experiences is, is of great interest to me because often say, for instance, if we have an experience of inner light in a lucid dream, we approach light, often people see the light through the tunnel or they see light coming through them. And often people get too excited and they wake up. For me, it's, it's been, how would it be if you go through the light? How would it be if you sustain the light? What happens then? The same thing with the experience of the void. Um, also, how is it that we can be in certain kind of environment that we have no waking reference point for it? No reference for those imagery, no reference for those experiences. And then suddenly we're encountering that in a lucid dream. That fascinates me, that how uh, our inner world is so rich. And uh, I, I like that uh, the metaphor that is used in Sufi tradition of chandelier. They say that if you know, they, they have this chandelier meditation, where the chandelier has so many different little diamonds with different facets. And when we go into lucid dreaming, for me, it's like going inside of this chandelier and trying to explore one aspect of it. And then it lightens up one and then it lightens up another. It's so complex. Uh, but ultimately, my interest with lucid dreaming is uh, to be present to the multidimensional aspect of our mind, to be um, present to this great spaces of the mind uh, that are there, but it's uh, sometimes not accessible. And once in a while, we're lucky or we've practiced well enough or however it is, we find ourselves in those spaces. And then I'm interested in how, when we are in that experience, what happens to us yeah. in our waking? Because uh, when we are in those experiences, we are not cut off from our waking experience. So it's an energetic experience. And then energetic physical body is experiencing those experiences and how that transforms the body, how that transforms the psyche, how it changes and transforms. That to me is, uh, has been my work with lucid dreaming and that has been uh, really still, <laughs> because the mind is so expanded and complex, it still is my work. And I really um, love, uh, uh, inquiring into that and that uh, what I'm doing right now is I've uh, I'm doing a, a book of an uh, it's more of an anthology of my own writings and research of 32 years 
And in this book, I'm showing all these different research I've done, and I'm going back and rereading my data that I've gathered with the eye 30 years later and seeing different things because I've changed. And so the data is changing in front of my eyes uh, and I'm seeing different things and all the way to the sections on creativity um, and how lucid dreaming uh, is a, a, an incredible uh, phenomenon for creative creativity and uh, uh, creative um, inspiration and how I have followed these it's like a thread that I have followed. The little thing opens up and the next thing opens up and the next thing opens up. And I just have to follow it without imposing any kind of interpretation and then close the book and put it away. But it's always an open book that I'm just trying to see where it's going. Where is, well, it's, it's that, as I mentioned, it's like the inquiry. So that is a more, more the way I think of lucid dreaming. And that's where I come from. Oh, I think it's it's really inspiring, Hariba. And you know, you're you're unique in this regard. There to have this, you know, again, it's it's perfectly resonant with your kind of integral approach to things. That you're a a unique hybrid, integral type of scholar practitioner that works with the more traditional kind of interpretive lens, than the lucid dreaming lens, than the dream um, dream yoga approach. And and so how how do you, how to say this, um, how do you parse this out? Is this by, is this by design? Is it by emergent design? Do you, do you allot a certain amount of time for these um, kind of approaches to your own dream world? Do you, do you incubate particular aspects of, of formal practice or is it a more open-ended serendipitous approach? Um, how, how do you play with the kind of multivalent relationship you have to all these dimensions of your own dreaming mind? Um, well, you know, I said it earlier on, I think that you know, I, I believe it in myself. Uh, you're asking more of a personal question and here's, for me, it's like I'm, in a, I'm a project into making. I see that in myself, that I'm, I'm just letting my dream world lead me to the next but but with a not just blindly i mean i i'm well trained i i'm listening and i'm just moving along and i uh, i don't try to create obstacle for this movement um at one point naturally at one point i'm gonna die and then, but even that, I I think that is 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 my next journey. Yeah, but part of part of you may die. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, it's just this next journey. It's, it's just an unfolding to the next thing. But um, it, it you know I it it might be very hard to say this, but I try not. I try to get out of the way in some ways. Yeah. If yeah. I if I am uh, fixated into even a method that I have created, then I have failed because uh, there are certain methods that I use that they're, to me, they're, they're eternal. <laughs> I've used them so many times and they work. So then I keep them. But I often, when I try different things, like, oh, okay, that didn't work. And then, then I, I try different things. 
I basically try to be open-minded to the dreaming world to see what I feel like I'm being done to in some ways. Something is being done to me and I am I'm listening to it. And well, it, I mean, an example of it is I really didn't want to write a book about lucid dreaming because uh, I uh, was coming from a more of a traditional background from my spiritual ba- you know, background that, you know, as a Taoist and a, you know, also Buddhist practitioner, meditative, med, med, contemplative practitioner. I uh, and also my personality. I'm I'm more of a socialized introvert. Uh, I just didn't want to have a, a popular book on lucid dreaming. I just didn't want to, and I could have. But now, then I'm thinking, well, why am I doing it now? Well, I'm not doing it. It's just basically people have asked me to do it. Then I listen to it because my background also is in shamanic studies and practice. Now people are asking me to do this. Now I will do it. Yeah. And it's very interesting, uh, Andrew, that I often don't uh, put myself up unless I'm invited. And that is my, also my, my background with my, uh, my background in Taoism and, and, and also in shamanic practices is, you know, you invited me, I say, Yes, <laughs> or somebody invites it. But if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, it just, that's how it is. I, I live my life like that. But luckily, life has provided beautiful things in that way that things evolves and things happen. And, and I'm, I'm trying to show up for it and I'm trying to be present to it. Um, so with, with lucid dreaming, I used to be a huge incubator of lucid dreaming. I would incubate dreams every night. I would practice because I, I was a practitioner. I wanted to know because I, I was doing all this research. Now I, I'm, I, I just let it happen to me. If I have a lucid dream, and then I let it be. If uh, if if there's an epic dream comes in, I write it down. I see waking as a dream. I, my life is a dream. I, my approach is that way. My, uh, I don't necessarily uh, search to go somewhere. I, I feel like I'm here where I am. And then I just move very slowly into it, into the atmosphere and see what happens. Um, I, I guess uh, in some ways, Phenomenology has really impacted me when I studied it years ago to do my doctorate dissertation. It really changed me in a very major way is that I'm just interested in experiencing and being present. And that is the, that's the practice from contemplative tradition, being present, experiencing, uh, waking and dreaming and not thinking that these two are separated. And uh, I can't even think that way. I can't think, I can't come to the place of dualistic thinking. I, I has to really, it's a more of a non-dual indigenous way of thinking. And, and that's perhaps because where, where I come from is, is, is more like a circular thinking. It's not linear thinking. Uh, and I just basically show up and pay attention and, and, and deeply listen and, and, so, so, and just move, move with it. And um, it's, different. it's different than many of my colleagues about how they do it. I know that it's different, but that's, that's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, 
um, comfortable with it. Oh, I think it's I think it's utterly refreshing, and so many things come to mind here. Again, it's a little bit like what I was alluding to earlier about you know you dance, you simply dance, and and to me it's like this wonderful kind of divine surrendering that takes place that, you know, the question really is not so much what should I do with my life, but what does life want to do with me or through Exactly. Me? And so it's like, it's really like thy will be done where, where you simply, I couldn't agree more. It's like, get out of the way and, and, and just let the life force it. This ties into everything we've been talking about in terms of the flow. This is real flow state yeah. where you just, you just become a, in a very deep way for me, for me, and this is where, where it transforms into completely selfless activity. You, you no longer act on your behalf. You act in a certain sense on, and I say this within quotations, but you act on behalf of reality. You act as a representative of reality, not in any kind of messianic way, but simply because you're so in tune, you're so in step with this dance that, you know, they say the great masters, it becomes utterly spontaneous and effortless. They, it, it becomes just the easiest thing in the world to do because you simply are being done you know the, the world the world is, is doing it through you um and so this this beautiful idea of, of of under constant construction or in another way constant deconstruction uh where where projects <laughs> are making and, and to me it, and then it, you know i have to say it's completely resonant with my approach fariba where you know, for years and years, especially in my three-year retreat, I was given the classic text and I did the, the recipe-specific conductions and all the stages and I was a good student. And I, you know, I, I'm not dismissing that at all. But now for me, it's like, it's just this big grand adventure where I am just so completely open to what happens. And, and, and it's, it's turned out to be the most delightful thing because I have some of the most outrageous new experiences um, that just continue to unfold that like that certainly didn't come from me. I certainly didn't think of that. I didn't incubate that. You know, like I'll just give you one quick example. I, I've been trying to, <laughs> I've been working with some neuroscientists um, trying to do some study designs to, to work with lucid sleep. You know, how can we substantiate that? And so I'm trying to up my game for possibly going in the lab and, and actually, you know, um, experiencing lucid sleep with these scientists. And so I've been trying to, I'm just kind of soaking in this space. Well, how can I do this? Because it's not an easy thing to do. And so the other day, I have to share this with you. The other day I had this most amazing lucid dream and I have no idea where this came from. But somewhere in the middle of this lucid dream, there was a chaise lounge there and there was a little white blanket. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take a nap in my lucid dream. I've never done that. It was the most amazing thing. So I lay down on the couch, I pull this white sheet over my head and I basically take a nap in my lucid dream. And it, it dropped me into this other dimension of kind of recursive dreaming. And so I came out, in fact, it was so funny when it happened during the dream, I actually found myself smiling within the dream. And, and to me, it was all part of this just delightful surrender to like, okay, let's see what happens tonight. You know, it's like you, I live and breathe this. It's like, my life is in a certain sense, a, a form of dream incubation, just because I'm, I'm just working with this material all the time. And it becomes so much more free and playful and delightful in this dance. And then, you know, I wake up and sometimes I'm just giggling. It's like, oh my God, can you believe what happened? It was like, you know, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, you know, uh, it's very interesting when when you um, 
you know, you have gone to a three-year retreat, and, and it is, uh, when you go through the spiritual um, training like that, it's, it's almost like a, it's not only for you, it's for good of all being, too, as in, in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I, for me, is too, and, and that's just a thing that's part of the, uh, the difference for me, is that I really see this more like a service than anything else. I don't, I don't, I never really thought of this as a egocentric um, something that I'm doing as a, as a form of grasping. It was a, from the beginning it was. And especially when I found out that when I was 27, I found out that my life was saved by my mother's telepathic dream. Oh, and wow. that uh, I was already working in the sleep laboratory, working with the Stephen LeBurge and the team there. And, was totally committed to the world of dreams, not knowing that my life was saved by my mother's dream. Wow. Uh, but it's it's almost like a, a it's a it's a natural natural um, way of being with that world uh, that is, is I just don't even question it. I thought about something you know when you were talking about on uh, not knowing and. In, in, in the chapter in Integral Dreaming, I titled it, uh, one of the chapter about non-interpretive approach to dreams, epistemic uncertainty. Oh, I that's one of the you questions know, I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just, you know, the, the, the study of epistemology and knowledge, and, and then uh, the, because I, I discussed the, uh, the dream of Chuang Tzu and butterfly of Chuang Tzu, and, yeah. and talks about uncertainty, of course, that is, comes from more the roots of Asian philosophy. Um, so I thought, bringing two paradoxes together, knowing and unknowing, epistemic uncertainty. So I googled and I was hoping that nobody had come up with that term. And I found that one mathematician came, you know, he used that term. Oh, that doesn't count, right? <laughs> oh, no, he, he, in the, he, he defined it differently because of this mathematics. Exactly. That's what I mean, exactly. It doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, um, I defined it in my own ways. It's, 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 it's basically knowing that the, within the knowing, uh, within the unknowing, there is knowing. Yeah. It's, it's that place of letting go and really deeply trusting and that there is some level of knowing inside of that knowing. Uh, and then I wanted to share you one story with Lama Tarchin that, that, was, that is, a, is relevant to what we're talking about. You know, when I met Lama Tarchin, he actually came to my dream in 1987, 88, when I was doing my, uh, my, uh, I was doing, I was actually just before I was launching my research, I was doing a lot of practice of lucid dreaming. I wanted to have that uh, incubation myself first. Every time I would get stuck anywhere in the lucid dream, he would show up in no. my lucid dream. Oh and would teach me technique how to go to the next level. Oh. Well, I've never met him before. I didn't know him at all. I used to call him my <laughs> dream llama. And I shared that with a couple of my friends. They said, oh, maybe it's Kalia Rinpoche. So I, uh, Kalia Rinpoche was visiting San Francisco. I went and took that two days he was in San Francisco and said, no, it wasn't Kalia Rinpoche. Then I met two other llamas and I was in them. And then later on, I saw a picture of Lama Tarchen and I knew it was him. Oh, wow. So later on, it took about a decade before I met him. It's a long story how that happened. But anyhow, I met him. And then I uh, wanted to study with him. It was an immediate recognition of each other. He immediately recognized me. He said, well, I've seen you somewhere. And I oh, said, 
you've been coming to my dreams for so many years. And he says, oh, that's where I met you. I thought, well, here's where That's amazing. <laughs> I, I took the refuge. I took lots of retreats with him and became good friend with him and his, uh, his uh, translator, Namang uh, Zanku. And then I entered into, uh, many years later, I, uh, uh, I invited them to my house in San Francisco. He came in and he also, as you might know, that he was a very good artist as well. He came to my house and he saw a painting of mine. And immediately he went to that painting and he said, tell me about this painting. Uh. Now, by then, uh, I wanted to take his advanced Dzogchen practices and he wouldn't let me till I finished my Nundro. Yeah. And by then I had done 100,000 prostration and I was doing the other 100,000 with you know, right. So he comes and looks at this painting. And this was the painting that directly related to my experience of light in lucid dream. So I told him about my experience in lucid dream. Then he asked me another question about that, another question. And then he looked at me and said, you can come and take my advanced class. Ah, that's awesome. Said, don't, don't tell that to anybody. Right. <laughs> don't finish your neutral, but come to the advanced class. But then he said, but don't expect that you're going to learn something new, but you're going to get a lot of confirmation. Oh my God. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. He, then we got into dialogue and for years we dialogued. And, um, and what it was is uh, what I was mentioning about these greatest spaces of the mind in lucid dreaming. Once we, we train ourselves, once we are ready to get to those spaces, then we connect to this collective consciousness yeah. that it goes deep into all these different traditions that you know people have done practices for for a long time to get to these experiences and i believe that in lucid dreaming we have that possibility of of uh, experiencing these it's very humbling it's really humbling it changes one's being it's not about oh i'm gonna go and have this experience is is something that it's it, it feels like a a, a beautiful uh, emergence of or uh, yeah emergence would be the better word for it emergence of of our uh, waking psyche inside of the deep deep uh, levels of our wisdom that that somehow they they start integrating together uh, in a big way but then then we wake up and then we have a lot of work to do <laughs> it's like how, how can we inc incorporate and integrate this in my relationship in my regular life and so that's life i mean it's and the challenges of life how do we do that and that that's that's the work that's the uh, path yeah that's yeah. the path yeah you know taking those insights leaving that kind of night light on so to speak stabilizing it integrating it literally incorporating it bringing it into your being absolutely and sharing it with others is that you know at that point same thing it's just a natural radiance and expression you know you, you're really on fruitional levels you don't even have to say or do a thing you know your mere presence then starts to transmit um which is what you feel with with someone like lama tarchin or the great masters and so for everybody as we start i, I we absolutely positively have to bring you back once your lucid dreaming book is out so then we could completely talk about this pitch the book um i can read it and we can go into this because this there's so much here that um i don't want to just kind of jam through it i do want to come um as we start to close things up a little bit 
out of respect for your time, I do want to ask you, um, you know, I, I often play with the kind of the bi-directional approach of lucid dreaming that, you know, the what you do with your dreams affects your life, what you do with your life affects your dreams. But I also work with, again, this is my term, the tri-directional component of this, that not only does lucid dreaming um, eventually come back to inform, transform, um, it can ping back into our life. I firmly believe it can ping forward into the dream at the end of time, which is the way the Tibetans talk about death. Death is the dream at the end of time. Very interesting term. So how, what a, a nice topic to kind of um, die with here. <laughs> How, ha how, has the, how have these practices um, helped you? Um, and I can, I don't, you don't have to have a precognitive dream to tell you this. You're going to die. <laughs> I'm psychic. I will tell you, Fariba, we're all going to die. Okay. So, so how, has, how have these nocturnal meditations prepared you and, and um, altered your relationship to death, to the dream at the end of time? Um, well, that's a big question to end, but it was probably an appropriate question to, to end. Um, well, I, I, I see that lucid dream practice for me is all about waking and awareness to um, the greater awakening, what, what, however that is. Um, but it's, a, it's also a way of preparing us for the moment of transition. And that moment of transition, uh, hopefully we've done enough practice to really uh, uh, let go of things that are no longer serves us. We just let go and uh, we uh, can feel uh, that no matter what we, we are <laughs> fulfilled where, who, where we are and who we are. I mean, we, we might set up all sorts of goals for ourselves. Oh, I want to do this, 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 this. I, it's all this grasping and attachment that how we can be uh, every day uh, to let go of those attachments and grasping to be prepared for it. Uh, I, I, I have to say that I had something happen to me in 2013 and I almost died. I was misdiagnosed and uh, I almost died. And it was a five days and I was working actually with Lama Tarchan uh, on death and dying. And what I learned from that time, I, mean, I was very lucky that I came back in some ways because uh, it was, I needed some more work to do, I guess. Um, but it was just letting go of all the desires, all the attachments, and then just be totally at peace with myself. And, and just in the practice of expanding myself, my mind, and just being embracing to where uh, the next adventure is. We, I, we don't know what the next adventure is, but it's in that place of total being at peace. And I think that that was the practice for me after I turned around. I uh, don't make big plans. I wake up every day, waking, you know, waking up. When I open my eyes, I, I say, oh, I'm back here in this dream. So what is the highlight of today? I mean, there will be, we have lots of lowlights and highlights. 
I try to have one highlight at least every day. So the day would be maybe the last day. Mm. And I, I do a lot of the practice of letting go and not grasping and trying to take care of certain things that I, I, when, when it comes the time, I won't regret it. Um, but it's, it's just, uh, for me, is how to not be uh, caught up into the, the the hard, dark emotional spaces. And, you know, right now is very hard what we're going through with COVID. And what is affecting me at this time is, is knowing and feeling thousands of people are dying every day. And it's hard to uh, not feel it, or it's hard to not be compassion, compassionate towards what's happening. And so what, I'm, what I do is I go to my studio, and I, I did this whole series of COVID that continues, and each piece is a prayer. I project myself into the globe. Mm. I try to uh, be with the one who's taking his last breaths. Because what we hear over and over is that how frightening it is for a lot of people who are dying, they're dying alone. Is that how I can basically be with them in some uh, invisible dimension that they are not alone, they're in company. And that while I'm doing this, I create something, I create an art piece. um, While I'm doing that, it's very shamanic that way, it's, it's, it's a way of really being out there with with what's happening and who knows maybe tomorrow this is going to happen for me and that's going to be I might catch the virus and I might not survive it and for me is to remember that feeling of uh, what I'm doing now in my studio is just being in light and being in that great spaces of the mind and then hopefully when I'm taking my last breath I will be in that spaces of the mind, that expansive state of the mind and not contract to some fear or contract to some nightmare or contract to to some emotion of anger or other things. Because that, to me, those kind of emotions are very solid and they're very um, dense. And then when we get into the more, uh, in a station of the heart and love and um, letting go, and that becomes more into the space of light. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is a question I mean, that we are all, it's not something that's happening to somebody else. It's, it's something that we all, all face with happen to us at any moment and any time. And how can we be prepared for it? And of course, we know the, the wonderful research that was done about the, the regrets of the dying and um, it's important, I think, to to express one's love to whoever that one loves and not have that regret that, oh, I, why didn't I say that? Or just really uh, feel that, it, it, feeling complete uh, to who we are at this point in time, because this is something that globally we are dealing with. It's not something that... It just happens to another. Um, so for me, this topic 
had a different meaning before COVID and during COVID is starting to get a different shape because uh, we have not lived um, in a situation like this ever in our lifetime where globally we see such a massive amount of death happening all the time. And of course, we are all faced with our own, you know, with our own situation as might happen to me, what, what would I do? But uh, I try to take one day at a time and really, really uh, just having a lot of uh, unconditional love for myself and also sending it out to the world. That's for me is that's all I can do at this point. Now, Fariba, what a, thank you for sharing. That really touches me. Um, yeah, it almost leaves me speechless. I don't know what to say. It's just such a wonderful sharing. Um, yeah, well, as, as, we, as we take our last breaths for, for this interview, how, <laughs> how can, tell us, uh, tell us more about what you're, you're working on the lucid dreaming thing. We'll have you definitely back for that. How can people learn more about you? How can they support you? You know, part of our little charter with our nightclub group is basically introducing and cross-pollinating between wonderful people like yourself. And so um, where can people learn about you? How can they support you? What's, what's next? Well, I, you know, like many writers, as you know, uh, we have moments where we go into our writing caves and incubate or, or hibernate, not incubate, hibernate, and then we come out. And um, 2018, I finished one book, it's called um, Gordon Onslow Ford, A Man on a Green Island. Uh, that was about the life of my mentor. And uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, and I did a lot of book talks for 2019. And now I'm more in the hibernation of doing uh, my, my book on lucid dreaming. Uh, so that's very sweet that you were asking me about uh, receiving support. But you know, if people want to follow what I do, I sometimes uh, post things on my social media and Facebook and uh, and if they want to see some of my uh, recent art I, I posted them in Instagram I don't usually post my artworks there uh, I post my experiences and my travels but um, that's how you can follow me and uh, and then if the book comes uh, out I will post it on my Facebook and uh, my, my website is under construction right now so uh, yeah, if people want to follow me on Facebook, but I would appreciate if uh, they would send me a little message to say that they heard this interview. Oh, there uh, there are so many people want to be, I, I just select a, a group of people I know or I have reference. And so if you say I've heard your conversation with Andrew, I would like to uh, be on your Facebook, that would be great. Uh, so then I can have you join in. But thank you so much, and uh, I mean, I really appreciate Andrew. I and I'm so sorry that it took so long for us to no. meet oh, up. To do it. Oh yes, yes, we started what some 16 months ago. Our dear friend. I think. <laughs> but so, you know, I was uh, as I mentioned to you, I was in the middle of uh, launching that book, and if any of your audience wants to look look up that, it's uh, you know, I co-founded Lucid Art Foundation with Gordon Onslow Ford, and if you go under publication there. Uh, you will find a lot of my art, uh, uh, publication about the art there. 
and then the book is there if you're interested uh, about that. So that's uh, so anyhow, I was launching that, and then I was uh, I, I, because of the distributor, we we had to I had to give a lot of book talks uh, more than uh, ever before. So um, and then of course after COVID, everything just shut down, and uh, so that was the time I started to get into my writing cave. But thank you so much, Andrew. That I really appreciate uh, this conversation and and uh, thank you for your invitation oh it's been a total delight i'm so finally glad to make this connection and i hope it's the first of many so um thank you so much for for the goodness of your heart your contributions to this world you're definitely making this place a better place and uh, you know what more can we ask so thank you so much fariba and until next time pleasant dreams thank you thanks so Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining us. And a huge thanks to Fariba for sharing her vast knowledge. If you enjoyed this episode, as usual, be sure to check out all the other things cooking on Nightclub. As usual, on that front, there's a lot going on. But until then, pleasant, lucid dreams. <laughs>